Welcome, I'm Cliff Hedges. This is Pastor Cliff's Notes. It's the podcast where we're studying the Bible. We're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. Today is episode 461. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Let's read our passage. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed, beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again, while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. There's more letters, but we call it second because it's the second one that we actually have. Paul apparently had sent a letter before 1 Corinthians, then he had sent 1 Corinthians, then he had sent this tearful letter, he had sent Titus to carry that letter. Now this is 2 Corinthians, a letter that we have. And it's a response to the tearful letter that Paul had sent, carried by Titus. And Titus has left Corinth, and they've rendezvoused up in Macedonia, northern Greece. And the news that Titus brings is that apparently the majority of the people in Corinth have come around to now supporting Paul, going along with Paul, backing Paul. But there's still a minority, a minority but a sizable minority, who are not convinced. And Paul's letter here is trying to convince that remaining group. So last time we looked at verses 3 through 7, and it was kind of a benediction But one of the themes of the benediction was afflictions. And his point was that Christ was afflicted, and as followers of Christ, we'll be afflicted too. But God comforts the afflicted, and we know that God will comfort us in our afflictions. So it was general language about afflictions. Now here in this section, verses 8 through 11, he's talking specifics. Okay, I talk kind of generally about afflictions, but now I want to talk about a specific affliction. So he says in verse 8, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. He was talking about afflictions. Now he says, now let me tell you about this affliction. Took place in Asia. Well, Asia's a big place. And you can't say things entirely for certain. But likely he's talking about Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia, so a lot of places, uh, Galatians, that whole area is Asia, but it's probably Ephesus he's referring to. Paul's been in Ephesus for a couple of years, and he's just left Ephesus prior to writing 2 Corinthians. He sent 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. And in 1 Corinthians, he talked about there's some opportunities for ministry. There's also opposition. He made another reference to fighting wild beasts. And we don't think he was ever thrown to the beasts in a uh, Colosseum kind of thing. As a Roman citizen, that wouldn't be allowed. But just dealing with the opposition and refer to them as wild beasts. Now we read the problem in Acts 19. And that could well be what he's referring to. So if we look at Acts 19, Paul had made a lot of inroads there in Ephesus. There were a lot of miracles taking place. People were coming to faith. And then people were turning away from their 
wicked ways. Read in Acts 19, 18. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated the value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So we see the success of evangelism there in Ephesus, in the region. But then there's opposition. We continue in Acts 19. We have the riot in Ephesus. This is where the silversmiths, well, they start a riot. And uh, Demetrius, the silversmith, says, you know, we make a good living making idols for people. And Paul's going around telling people these idols are worthless. This is going to affect our business. And, oh, by the way, it's offensive to the great god Artemis. And so they had this great riot that took place. Demetrius gets the silversmiths all upset, and we pick it up in verse 28. When they had heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus. Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. So we have this uh, chaotic thing, and people stopped Paul from going into the amphitheater, apparently for fear that he would be torn limb from limb. He descended into chaos, and it was shortly after that that Paul left Ephesus. So is that the episode he's talking about? It could well be. I, I think it is, but I have nothing to base that on. He describes it. He says, I want to tell you about our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. This sounds pretty serious. And did they believe they were about to be killed? There in Ephesus at the riot? Well, it sounds like a pretty crazy, chaotic thing. And he, even the, his friends wouldn't lo- let him go in and proclaim the gospel in that setting. The, the, uh, some of the officials urged him not to go in there. They kept him away from it. And it was so bad, he ended up leaving the town. So he speaks out. Well, overwhelmed they were. In verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So he's recounting here how they felt. They really felt down about this. They, they felt like they had died. They lost all confidence in their ability to get anything done. And they were in, in the, the deep, dark despair. Then verse 10, he has delivered us from such terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Now, what's Paul's point in all of this? He was talking in the benediction last time about affliction. With affliction comes comfort and salvation. And that God comforts us so that we can comfort others. And this is the way God works, is that when bad things happen to us, we're then in a position to comfort others. And we're comforted directly by God. So his point is to show that this was a bad, bad situation. But God delivered them. Now, how did he deliver them? Well, one is he physically protected them. But he also delivered them in a ministry sense, where that wasn't the end of Paul's ministry. 
it shortly wrapped up there in Ephesus, at least for Paul. But the ministry carried on beyond Paul. Paul then went to Macedonia to continue his ministry. But he says delivered three times here. He has delivered us. He will deliver us. Then a letter, he will deliver us again. What's he getting at here? Well, he's saying in the past, God has delivered us. And we're certain in the future, he's going to deliver us. But then this third deliverance, we have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. I think that's talking to that final deliverance, where the actual deliverance against death itself. And he links that to hope. Our hope for eternity is in the Lord, who will deliver us because he has conquered death itself. So we've seen him deliver us in the past. We confidently he'll deliver us in the future. And then he will deliver us again with that final hope. And then verse 11, he says, while you join in helping us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Some of this is just worded awkwardly, and that's where you do your best to translate things. But you join in helping us by your prayers. Well, how's that work? This goes to what's, what's the deal with prayer? Why do we pray? What is prayer? What's the purpose of prayer? How do we know if prayer works? Well, at its basic level, what is prayer? Prayer is talking with God. So, does prayer work? Well, if you talked with God, then, then prayer worked, because prayer is talking to God. But so often we don't think about prayer that way. What we think about, did I get what I wanted? That means prayer worked. Well, if prayer is talking with God, and if what I wanted was to talk with God, and there's no such thing as not getting what I wanted. Now, did I get an outcome in a situation that I desired? Well, that's, that's a different thing. That's talking about the deliverance. And that deliverance can take a, a lot of different forms. We may actually be physically rescued from the problem we're in. We may not, but we may actually be carried through that problem. Or the problem may overtake us, and then that final deliverance through death, where we're delivered from death. So we depend on God for deliverance, but we don't always know what that's going to look like. But how does prayer work with that? And sometimes people get a little confused with prayer. The purpose of prayer is to get stuff from God. No, no. The purpose of prayer is to connect with God. Now, in that, there's a lot of aspects of prayer, just as there's aspects of talking to anyone. If I sit down and talk with you, we have a conversation. I tell you what's on my mind. You tell me what's on your mind. We talk about things in general, and you can tell me what you want. I can tell you what I want. Well, that's the same thing with prayer with God. It's conversing with God. It's communicating with God. It's us telling God what's on our mind, us listening to God, hoping to know what's on his mind, him telling us what he wants, and us telling him what we want. So if we boil it down to, did I get what I want? That's the essence of prayer. It's, it's so selfishly centered. That's not relational. That's just looking to get something. You know, if, if you translate that to a, a relationship with someone, of it's only successful, my relationship with you, if you give me what I want. 
and say, whoa, that's some kind of uh, a disorder there, personality disorder you're dealing with there. But we often look to God that way. But if we do talk about getting what we want and praying, praying for deliverance, praying for intercessions, praying on behalf of one another, how does that work? And again, we got to be careful. We don't dumb it down to some of the things we kind of are raised to believe, such as if we get enough people praying for this, that increases the chances of a positive outcome. That's viewing prayer as some kind of spiritual energy thing. And if I can just get enough of it in my bank account, then I can cash it in and get the good thing. I went, no, that's not the way it works. And nowhere in the Bible do we ever get a hint of anything like that. Of the more people that pray for something, it increases the likelihood of having a positive outcome. And, and James, when James encourages us to pray for one another, and if you have a problem, go to the elders. Well, how do you say the, the prayer of a righteous man avails much? Not the more you can get praying for you. It's just one person praying has effect. And by effect, that doesn't necessarily mean getting what you want. So why pray if God knows best what he's going to do? And I'm praying, why, why do I want to convince him to do something differently? Well, back to think relationally. Why does God encourage us to pray? Well, one way to look at that is it engages us in what he is doing. I often use the example of a grandchild. I'm in my garage working on my lawnmower, and my grandson comes along, and I want him to help me. Do I need his help? No. Is his helping going to increase the efficiency? No, it's going to decrease the efficiency. Would it go quicker without him? Absolutely, but I want him to help me. Why? because I want the relationship with him. I want him to be engaged in this with me because I love him. And I want him to be interested in the things that I'm interested in because of the relationship. And that's one of the reasons God has us praying about things, not to convince him to do something, not to give him permission to do something, not to build up enough spiritual energy to empower him to do something. No, because he's doing something and he wants us to be involved in it. And prayer changes us. It doesn't change God. Is God influenced by prayer? Well, there's some indications in the Bible that, yeah, God does seem to change things based on prayer. But it changes us for certain. And often when we pray, we start to see things from his perspective. If we stop telling him so much about our perspective, we start to see things from his perspective. And we also take more of a, an ownership of what's going on and more engaged ourselves in what he is doing. So we're talking about prayer. It's us engaging in what God is doing, participating in what is God is doing, and not so much trying to convince God to do what we think he ought to do. So that's how we help in prayer. Then this last line, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Well, what's he talking about here? He's talking about prayers of thanksgiving for what God has done. Then many will be giving prayers of thanksgiving because of what God has done. So he's telling them basically God delivered us. We know he delivered us. We know he's going to deliver us. And there will be a final deliverance 
regardless of how things worked out, you're engaging in this by your prayer, and you should be thanking God for what he's done through prayer. Part of the Christian life is affliction, and just as Christ was afflicted, he comforts us. And as we encounter affliction, we can comfort others. But we know that God will deliver us and that he will keep delivering us. And Paul gives this example of affliction and how God was at work. And it didn't work out the way perhaps he wanted it to. He ended up having to leave town and go to Macedonia. But the ministry carried on. The gospel was proclaimed and the Lord was glorified. Thanks for joining me. Join me again next time as we continue working through 2 Corinthians.